And our verses this morning will be verses 14 and 15. Psalm 17, verses 14 and 15. This is the word of the Lord. Give it your full attention. From people by your hand, Lord, from people of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babies. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we will be seated. Father, help us now as we consider your word. Be with preacher and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday morning we considered the righteousness that we receive from Jesus Christ that there is no work that we add to our salvation other than believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We present our sin to the Father and nothing else. And what we saw is that we are saved primarily, first and foremost, by Jesus Christ. Also, we saw that we are saved secondarily by Jesus Christ. And thirdly, and fourthly, and fifthly, it is only by Jesus Christ that one finds salvation. But saints, we have to ask though, uh, is salvation merely us being freed from hell and the forgiveness of sins? In other words, if you were to, or someone was to ask you, uh, what all encompasses salvation? What would you say? Well, again, many of us might say, It is us being freed from the coming judgment of God and now being accepted by God. It is being freed from hell and now being allowed to enter heaven. It is now no longer being a sinner, but now a saint of God. But we have to ask, well, what do all those things mean? What does it mean to be a saint of God? What does it mean to be welcomed by God? And this comes, well, we come this morning uh, to this wonderful doctrine that theologians have called the beatific vision. And that is to say, Christianity, salvation in Christ is much more than just forgiveness of sins. And that's probably the biggest thing I want you to, to, to know first and foremost is that in Christ, We don't merely just receive a pardon of sin, but also we receive a reward. We receive a reward. You might say, well, my reward is that crown uh, that will be given to me at heaven. And God will say to me, good and faithful servant. But saints, the reward is so much better than that. Your reward is is so much better than just merely entrance into heaven. Your reward is so much better than merely just escaping the judgment of God. Your reward is much better than 
when you receive your resurrected bodies, seeing all of those whom have gone bef- uh, before you, and you get to uh, say hi to them and, and talk to them once again. It's so much better than that. See, saints, we aren't to belittle the great reward that the saints receive to just merely seeing our saved family and friends who gone and went to heaven. It's much better than that. It's much better than merely just heaven itself. Than the place. But our great reward is when the veil will be lifted from our eyes and we will see our God. That is the great reward. That is the great hope of the Christian. You see, saints, your hope is not the forgiveness of sins. You already have that. You're not looking forward to the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are already forgiven. Rather, your hope is seeing God face to face. This is the hope of the Christian. You see, saints, many of us think that we know what true happiness is. Many of us think we know what true satisfaction is. But saints, in this blessed vision, you will not be more happy and more satisfied. Consider what one theologian said, Pseudo-Dionysius, when he considered this great vision of God, he said, in a most holy contemplation, we should ever be filled with a sight of God shining gloriously around us as once it shone for the disciples at the divine transfiguration. And there we shall be our minds away from passion and from earth. And we shall have a conceptual gift of light and from Him and somehow in a way we cannot know we shall be united with Him and our understanding carried away, blessed forever. We shall be struck by His blazing light. It is this beatific vision, saints, when the saints of God are struck with this glorious and blazing light. And saints, we want to consider David this morning. And how does David view true satisfaction? How does David view the ultimate good? What is David looking forward to in his life? David is looking forward to that time when he shall behold God's faith, face and righteousness. And when he does, he shall be satisfied in God. Let's consider just two points. Number one, the satisfaction of the world. As we come to uh, verse 14 of Psalm 17, we have before us a contrast. And the contrast is between two parties. Specifically, two parties and the way in which these two parties find their ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate good. We all saints in this world have certain things that satisfy us, do we not? We can think of things in this world that bring us the light. There are things that if we were to think about even right now, uh, we would maybe in our minds smile 
There would be an overwhelming joy within us. For myself, many of you probably already know from if you were here uh, in the uh, announcement time, uh, In-N-Out burgers bring me much satisfaction. I absolutely love In-N-Out. Everything about In-N-Out. I love In-N-Out. Reading certain theologians satisfy me. Watching my sons who now play together satisfy me. Spending time with my wife satisfy me. There are many things in this world that satisfy me, but saints, as good and as great as all of those things are, we must make a distinction between earthly and temporal satisfactions and the ultimate and everlasting satisfaction. Consider with me what David says in verse 14, from people by your hand, Lord, from people of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babe, babies. <clears throat> what does the world find satisfaction in? Again, the psalmist says, whose bellies you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children whose portion is in this life. Here it's important to note that David is not complaining to God about the prospering of the world. I mean, he's speaking of the world in good terms, is he not? They're, they have treasure in their belly. They're, they have children. They're receiving great things. But David here is not complaining and saying, God, why are you blessing the world? Why are you blessing the wicked and not the righteous? David is not asking God, God, why do the wicked prosper in this life? He's not asking God that. A question that I'm sure many of us have asked before. When we see our unsaved family members and friends enjoying the fruits of this world while we are still working for the scraps, we can ask God and say, God, why are they who do not bow their knee to you, why are they living prosperly in me, the righteous? are not living as well as them. That is not what David is doing. But in verse 14, David is not worried about the world and what the world has and what he doesn't have. For David understands that all things come from God. And this is what he says, does he not? He says, whose belly you fill with your treasure. Notice, that David is saying, you fill the wicked, not with any treasure, but your treasure. Meaning, whatever the wicked receive, it is from the treasure chest of God. God is the great donator of all treasures. And David here is saying, whatever the wicked have, God, it is first and foremost from you, by you. David understands that whatever the world has, it is first given by God. And, and notice this, saints, this is something that we all need to consider. That David also understands that whatever God gives, it is not his prerogative to question. Again, whatever, whatever God gives to the wicked, then that is God's prerogative. That is up to God and not myself. Whatever God does is whatever God does. 
I'm not going to question. I'm not going to ask why. For God can do whatever He wants. God can bless the wicked at the same time He can withhold from the righteous. So what is David doing in verse 14 then? If he's not as what we would probably do when we consider the wicked and what they are receiving, if he's not asking God, God, what are you doing in blessing these people? What is he doing? Well, simply he's making an observation. He's making an observation. He's simply looking at his enemies. David from afar looks at the wicked and says, what are they? What is the wicked satisfied in? Again, he says, whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babies. To David, the world finds their ultimate satisfaction in the things in this life. That is the ultimate satisfaction for the world. It's things in this life. And notice the slight distinction I'm making, saints. Being satisfied in children, being satisfied in treasures of the world is not bad per se. I love my sons and, and, and I hope that you love your children if you are blessed to have some. I hope that you uh, appreciate and enjoy all of the treasures that you have in this world. Praise God for that. But it's finding your ultimate satisfaction in these things for the Christian as if life couldn't get any better. You are simply disregarding the Christian's hope. You simply do not understand the ultimate good. The world finds its contentment in temporal and fleeting things. And saints, many of us can amen this because many of us fall in this category, do we not? Finding ultimate satisfaction in our children going to the best schools possible. And getting the best job possible. And obtaining uh, the best, best health as possible. And notice the distinction again, saints. I'm talking about ultimate satisfaction. As if there can't be anything better than that. In homes and cars and jobs, children. You see, saints, this is the world's idea. This is the world's finding their satisfaction in things in this life, and the reason because for the world, there is no greater life that's to come. You see, saints, this is the error and the folly of atheism. This is the error and folly of, of those who are in the middle, whether I just need a little bit more proof if there is a God, that there is no hope for them, but everything in this life is everything that they will receive. Their portion is in this life. And this, saints, is the reason why David is not to be jealous of the world. Saints, don't ever be jealous of what the world has and what you don't have. <laughs> don't ever be envious with what this person's driving, what this person lives in, what this person is eating, what this person is doing. David has no reason to be envious 
for the prospering of the world. Let the world have all of the riches. Let the world have all of the money. Let the world have everything. And it's interesting, is it not? We didn't read the following verses leading up to verse 14, but in your spare time, if you will, in chapter 17, before David gets to verse 15 and verse 14, he's speaking about being oppressed. (laughs) He's speaking about his enemies surrounding him. And even in light of that, in light of his enemies coming toward him, David knows that there is something that awaits him that far surpasses any and everything that this world has to offer. Consider with me verse 15. David says, as for me, as for me, I especially love the beginning of verse 15. It is as if in verse 14, David is looking at the world And even prior before that, he's looking at his own life and he sees this dark cloud over his own life. And as we come to verse 15, David looks to heaven. He takes his eyes off the world and the treasures of the world and the concerns of the world and the satisfaction of the world. He takes his eyes off of even his own self and the the cares and, and what's going on in his own life. And he says, but as for me, As for what I have, as for my satisfaction, the world can have their treasures, they can have their bellies filled, they can have their children, but as for me, as the Christian, as the saint of God, as the one who believes in Christ by faith, as for what awaits me, David here is echoing with These three words, he's echoing what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What Paul is saying is whatever I'm going through right now is not worth comparing to that which I do not see now and will be revealed to me in due time. It's worth it. All that I'm going through. So then saints, we have to ask, what is David looking forward to? What does David have his, has his eyes and his mind set on? What is it in David's life that, that when he contemplates, it surpasses every treasure in this life? Well, consider with me verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with likeness or your likeness when I awake. Saints, what David is speaking of here in verse 15 is what theologians have called historically the beatific vision. This is something that you might have not have heard before. Maybe you have. If you were uh, living during the patristic church father era or maybe even the medieval early reformation era, This would be the the staff of life. This would be the green pastures that, that you were looking forward to. This would be on your mind constantly and daily. The beatific vision. This is, saints, the climax for the Christian. Now, there are two things 
I want us to know when we consider this vision. Number one, what is this vision? What is David speaking of? And number two, what is the result of this vision? If you're asking this morning, like David, what do I have look forward to? Let's consider this first point, and that is, what is the beatific vision? The beatific vision, saints, is the uh, is uh, the saints in heaven blessed sight of God. The beatific vision is the saints in heaven blessed sight of God. The beatific vision is the most happiest sight of the saints who are in heaven now. John Owen said, the enjoyment of God is by sight, is commonly called the beatifical vision. And it is the sole foundation of all the actings of our souls in the state of blessedness. In other words, what is the foundation of your happiness in heaven? It is the beatific vision. It is this vision of God. And scripture is flooded with this great truth. Psalm 36 verse 9 For the foundation of life is with you. In your light, we see light. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are children now, of God now. Now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears... We will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, what do I mean when I say that the saints in heaven see God? What do we mean when we say we shall see God? I mean, that alone is pretty intense, is it not? Well, first and foremost, I don't mean that we will see the divine essence of God by the physical eye. In other words, we will not see God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the same way that you see me right now. That's not what I mean. God is spirit and cannot be seen with the physical eye. In fact, this is what God tells Moses in Exodus 33, 20. He said, uh, he further said, you cannot see my face for mankind shall not see me and live. So, if the beatific vision is the blessed sight of the saints in heaven who see God, and we read from Scripture that man cannot see God and live, then in what manner will we see God? In what way will we see God? Well, there's two ways. Number one, the first way is an intellectual sight of God. An intellectual sight of God. William Perkins, the father of Puritanism, says, the second kind of sight is of the mind, which is nothing but the knowledge or understanding of the mind. And that is twofold, imperfect in this life and perfect in the life to come. Simply put, saints, this seeing of God, when we talk about seeing God, the first way in which we speak about seeing God is through the eye of the mind. It's through the eyes of understanding. Is the saints being filled with a knowledge of God that far surpasses the knowledge of God that we have in this life. All of us know God to a certain extent. And what we are saying is in the beatific vision, 
we will know God in a way that we cannot and will not know God in this life. Jesus said in John 7, John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ with whom you sent. We as humans are created unique from the rest of creation. For God has given us an intellectual soul with the ability to use logic and think rational, to know things in a way that the rest of creation can't know things. Mountains can't know things the way you know things. Animals cannot know things the way you know things. Chairs, uh, whatever, cannot know things the way you know things. So you are the very apex of God's creation. But what makes you distinct? Your minds. You're able to think. You're able to will what you think. And in heaven, what we are saying is our knowledge of God will be heightened to its maximum capacity. Will be heightened to its maximum capacity. This knowledge of God will be a perfected knowledge of God. It will be a knowledge of God that is free from sin. A knowledge of God that is free from debates. A knowledge of God that is free from opinions. A knowledge of God that is free from any church father's uh, uh, commentary. From any theologian and what they have to say. It is a knowledge of God that will be unmediated. Isn't that wonderful? An unmediated knowledge of God. In other words, we will know God without the aid of Scripture. You will not have to read another Bible verse in heaven. Not that it's bad. But God is going to fill you with the knowledge of Himself. We will know God without the aid of His works of creation. We don't have to look at God and, and see Him through the cosmos. We will know God without the aid of theology textbooks. We will know God without the aid of a preacher. You will never have to hear me ever again. Praise God. Now, of course, this knowing God in heaven does not mean that we will know God in the same way that he knows himself. We cannot comprehend even in the, even when the heights of our intellect are raised in heaven, the infinite being of God. We will never be able to comprehend the infinite being of God. But saints, in heaven, we will be able to touch, we will be able to apprehend the infinite being of God in a way that we cannot touch, in a way that we cannot apprehend Him in this life. That is, that is so grand and great, is it not? What an experience this will be, saints. That studying theology can be hard. That reading scripture may be difficult at times, but friends, there is coming a day when our pilgrim theology, when the theology that we have that's on the way, the theology that is imperfect, that's this theology that we see, that we have now, that's through a glass darkly, that's sinful, that's corrupt, this theology will be transformed and will be perfected into theology of vision. 
The things that we do not see and know clearly now will be, will be clearly understood in heaven. This is what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 12 through 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Isn't that wonderful? That now we see Christ, but through a mirror that's shattered, through a mirror with fog, with a mirror that we cannot see clearly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as also I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, and love remain, but these three, the greatest of these is love. In this blessed vision of God, faith will be stripped away. In this blessed vision of God, the virtue of hope will be left on the earth. And God will overflow our souls with love and understanding. Saints, I don't know about you, But the greatest thing that the Christian does in this life is first and foremost, reads the scriptures, reads all of the great literature that has come by the great church fathers and medieval theologians and those in the Reformation period and all of them. And then saints, what is the great delight? The things that we have studied, all those things that we get wrong are then corrected. The things that we did not understand in this life are then perfected. And we get to know God. Don't you want to know God better? Don't you desire to know Him in a way that He has called us to know Him? Well, yes, we start in this life. But saints, on that glorious day, God is going to fill our minds with knowledge of Himself that cannot be comprehended in this life. Now, There is, though, a second manner in which we will see God. The first way we see God is through the eye of the mind. But the second way is through the physical eye. The physical eye. Now, you might say, we just said that we cannot see God through the physical eye. Then how in the world are we going to see God through the physical eye? Well, saints, as you know, we will see the face of the glorified Jesus Christ. And when we see Christ, we will see God. Job says in Job 19, verses 25 to 27, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, yet as for me, again, echoing David, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last He will take his stand on earth even after my skin is destroyed. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I, on my part, shall behold for myself. And whom my eyes will see, my eyes, and not another. My heart faints within me. Isn't this the glory of heaven? None of the scripture writers talk about my heart fainting when I see my mother who passed before me or my father or my grandmother or the pearly gates or the streets of gold 
or the mansions with many rooms. That's not what makes my heart faint. What makes my heart faint is with my eyes, I shall see my Redeemer. That is what stops and what stopped those who pinned the Scriptures for us. This is what was the pulse beat of many theologians throughout the centuries. This is the hope of heaven. It is seeing Christ because if Christ is not in heaven, then, then is there really heaven? Do we even want to go to heaven if Christ is not there and we cannot see Him? Now, at this point, seeing Jesus Christ is quite honestly the hardest thing for me to put into words. It's hard for me even to describe what will it be like when we see Jesus Christ in all of His glory. Plato once asked, what if the man could see beauty itself? See beauty pure, stripped of morality, in all of its pollution, stains and vanities, unchanging divine. See, what Plato was asking is, can you imagine seeing beauty unveiled? I mean, beauty with a capital B. Beauty with no impurities. What would it be like, saints, to see that? Think of all the beautiful things you've seen thus far with your eyes, the buildings, the mountains, the seas, the stars, the various arts. We all can look at those things and say, wow, that's beautiful. But now, saints, think of beauty unveiled. Think of one who is the very idea, the very essence of beauty. Oh, saints, what a sight it will be when we see our risen, ascended, and glorified Christ. And we have to ask, what will we do when we see Him? I mean, we have a tendency, I'm sure, to think of all those in heaven when we receive our resurrected bodies. What would we do when we see those who have gone before us The saints ask this question, what will you do when you see Jesus? What will you do when you see the one who lived, died, and rose for you? Not the one who birthed you, your mama. Not the one who fed you, your daddy. Not the one who took care of you, your grandmama. But the one who lived, died, and rose for you. What will you do? Will you Give him a hug. <laughs> Will you, as many contemporary, wrongly, I might say, uh, song, Christian songs they say, will you dance with him? Will you run your hands through his hair, if he has hair? Will you put your hands where he was speared? Will you see where the nails are at and want to touch them? What will you do when you see Christ? Well, saints, I don't know. I don't know what I will do. I don't know what you would do. In fact, I 
I just want to wait till that time comes. <laughs> but when we consider Scripture and what it says, and when others see God and have a vision of God, we see that what many of them do are probably not the first thing that we would do. Moses takes off his shoes. Job covers himself in dust and ashes and confesses his sins. Isaiah falls down. John falls down. What would we do when we see our Christ? Well, whatever we do, saints, it will surpass any and all that we have ever experienced. And oh, what a day that's going to be. Secondly, as we are coming to a close, what is the result of this vision? What is the result of this? Is it merely we see Christ, we have this vision and this knowledge of God, and we just say, okay, now show me the rest. Sort of like when you walk into Disneyland, and when you first get there, you say, oh man, this is great. I see all the rides, I've walked around, now what? You leave the park and you want to know what's what else is going on? Is it like that? Is it going to be a static vision of God? We're there, we see him, and then boom, we're bored. Will we ever get bored with the vision of God? Well, first and foremost, saints, you will not be bored in heaven. Because since God is infinite, this vision and this knowledge cannot be exhausted. You can't exhaust one who is infinite. But rather, this vision will be something like this. As the great church father Zwingli said, it is sort of like eating your favorite meal and not getting too full, but just enough. And as soon as you eat that meal, like I eat my In-N-Out burgers, I want another one. <laughs> and I want another one. And I can't, ex- I can't wait to experience that once again. That is like the vision of God. But again, the result of this vision, David says in verse 15, as for me, I should behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Saints, the first result of this vision will be the perfection of our beings. Will be the perfection of our beings. We currently are in this process of sanctification. And sanctification, simply put, is the Holy Spirit enlightening. It is Him moving our wills to know God, to love God. It is Him within our souls removing all of the impurities, all the things that continue to bound us to sin. It is Him simply making you more like Christ. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing now within you. But saints, when we obtain this vision, our sanctification will be complete. The Holy Spirit will no longer have to work grace within our souls. You will no longer battle with sin. You will no longer have a sinful thought, a sinful inclination. You will never want to act out sin because you will be perfect. You will be like Christ. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. 
prophecy to Paul, this vision is transformative. There's something about this vision that causes our souls to be pure and to be righteous. Meaning that in this vision, in complete righteousness, in complete holiness, we shall behold the face of God. And secondly, saints, the result of this vision is complete happiness. Complete happiness. Notice the last line of verse 15. David says, I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. The great church father Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. We are a people who are constantly seeking the good and true happiness. But man in this life cannot rest with contentment with any earthly good. For all earthly goods are temporary. I remember when I first got my iPhone, the first iPhone that I ever got. I learned that next September they're making a new iPhone. And suddenly I was no longer happy. We uh, work for cars until suddenly someone drives next to us with the newest car. And then we want a greater good. It's something ingrained within us. It's an, an innate within us that we are constantly searching for the good. We are constantly searching for something that when we receive it and have it, we will not have to look for anything else. We would not find this in that in this life, saints. We would not find any earthly good that will cause us to be content and never have to search ever again. But when the saints in heaven finally are rewarded with the vision of God, we will not have to seek after another greater good. For what is greater than knowing God and seeing Christ. There will be nothing, saints, that you have to look forward to. There is nothing greater than this vision. For we will be completely satisfied in God, in knowledge, and by love. And we will be forever blessed. Saints, this morning, I hope, in this short time and if you come in the evenings, uh, uh, eventually we will talk about the beatific vision much more in detail. <clears throat> but saints in this life, I hope that we take our uh, marching orders and I hope that we take the way we look at life from the model of dear Saint David. What makes you happy? What is good in this life? And then ask yourself by those things that make you happy and those things that you find that are good in this life, is this all that life is? Or is there something more? This is something that I hope, I wish that as a young person, teenager, even prior to that, I wish I knew that is there something else other than this? Is there a greater good? Even if, even at uh, at an older age, older people have not even contemplated this question. 
contemplate this question, saints. And the great news of the gospel is, yes, there is. There is something greater. There is something that is more good. And it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the great reward of believing upon Christ is not merely you get your get-out-of-hell-free pass, but it is seeing God face to face. The one who loved you and gave Himself for you. And you get to be blessed forever and not only seeing Him, but knowing Him. I hope, saints, that this is your uh, blessed uh, 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 reward in your future that you're looking forward to. Seeing Christ in all of His glory and being filled with the knowledge of God. Let's pray.